Thank you, Melanie and, and worship team. Indeed, we're going to hear about God's faithfulness today, and um, we're also going to hear about somebody who's both been on a mountaintop and is also sitting in a pile of ashes. So the good news is, is, and what I want you to hear today is wherever you're at in your life, there is always something in God's Word that will apply to where you're at, apply to where you've been, and, and also apply to the fact that God, if you're drawing breath, God has a plan for you. And I hope you hear that as we meet Samuel and a new character today in 1 Samuel chapter 16. As Melanie mentioned, it's, it's not hard to find out where we're at because over the course of the last several weeks, we've been going through this series, Meeting God in a Royal Mess, in the book of 1 Samuel. And as you've probably seen in the last couple of weeks, especially if you were here last week, we've indeed gotten to the royal mess now. If you didn't uh, join us last week or you haven't watched that message yet, I encourage you after today to go back and, and listen to Pastor Nathan talk through uh, 1 Samuel 15, where we see Saul fail. We see him crash and burn. And in fact, in a bigger sense, we see the beginning of kind of the self-destruction of King Saul and his removal as king of Israel. Even though he'll be king of Israel for some time still, we see this beginning of just his self-destruction. What, what was come to find out on the inside of his heart is now coming out. And we'll see that today. Uh, and we'll see that in greater, greater uh, detail over the coming weeks. But I really want to start us on this, this page where I think Samuel's at. It, at the beginning of this chapter, as soon as we begin reading, you'll see. And it, and it ties into last chapter. At the end of last chapter, chapter 15, Samuel kills the evil king Agag of the Amalekites. This was not something he was supposed to do. And what I mean by that is Saul was supposed to do that. So Samuel inherits this failure of Saul, has literal blood on his hands because of Saul's failure. And, and, and at the end of the chapter, Samuel and God himself are saying, this isn't the kind of king Israel is supposed to have. This isn't how this was supposed to go. So we leave Samuel in the last chapter at Ramah in his home. And he's in his home in Ramah still at the beginning of this chapter. And he's just sitting there in, in both literal and figurative rubble. So I want to give you this image as we start. Because I think that no matter what your life experiences have been, you might be in this situation now. You might, might have been in a similar situation. But because... Of, because of something that you've done, a choice that you've made, or a choice that's been made for you, or been done to you, you're sitting in this just bombed out remains of what was your life, wondering, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. I would have never chosen this. In fact, a lot of what's happening in our lives is often what we wouldn't choose. Sometimes that's for the better, because God certainly knows better than we do. But, but right now, I think Samuel would rightly say this is not what we would choose. And and some of you might be there today, and I, and I hope what you hear, amongst other things today, I hope what you hear is that there is good news in this passage as well as many other passages in God's Word for people just like you, people like us, like Samuel, who sit and say, I would have never chosen this, and, and I don't know how God could possibly use me now. Because the first thing God says to Samuel is, I'm going to use you. i got a plan for you. So let's start reading and, and just kind of talk about some of these things and and I hope you see the good news for, for faithful followers of God today. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the, the text will be on the screen, and, and I encourage you to follow along in your word here at home. The Lord says to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? 
How long will you grieve? I love that that's the question God asked Samuel. He doesn't say, get over Saul. Why are you grieving Saul? He understands where Samuel's heart is at. And he says, how long? Aren't you thankful that that's the way God looks at grief, not get over it? This is foolish, Samuel. You know he's a sinner. No, God understands where Samuel's at and says, hey, how long? And I want you to picture the attitude of God here is, hey, how long is it going to be? Because I know it's not over, and I want to show you that. I want to show you there's something that we're going to do, that I'm going to do through you, not get over it, it's all over, move on. It's, it's just so gracious. How long, Samuel, are you going to grieve? And you'll see this plan, this, this what he has for Samuel to do as we go through this chapter. I just want to point out, though, the character, these, these passages, these narratives, Show us characters of God. And the character for God, for someone in grief, is he understands where, where their heart is at. But he's not done with them. That's so powerful. Also, I want you to see as we start that there's a lot of eyes in these passages. God is super active. He's saying, I am going to do this. Make no mistake, who's making the choices here? We've seen a lot of these awful choices that Saul did. Now you're going to see something different because God is making decisions. And it's incredible what happens here, how different it's going to be. So pick up on those eyes when God is active. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So Samuel is living up in Ramah, north of what will become Jerusalem. And now Bethlehem is south of Jerusalem, or what will become Jerusalem. So he's going to travel down to this family, Jesse the Bethlehemite. And right away we see some of Samuel's humanity here as he responds to some of the instructions God's about to give him. But let's see what what God has planned for Samuel. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Hopefully this verse, if you've been with us for a little while, takes you back to chapter 8 when Saul is anointed as king. The language there is, is God is talking to Samuel and the people are rejecting God as their king and saying we want a human king, one we can see. So the language there is, is Samuel... Obey their voice. Choose for them a king. But now God is saying, I'm going to do something different. I've I've gotten a king for myself, Samuel. He's going to be my king. He's not going to be your king or even Israel's king. He's not going to belong to anybody but me. This is how we know this is going to be different and and how God is going to be proving step by step to Samuel as he goes down to Jesse and his family, as he anoints this future king, that God is, is doing something different now, that he's got a plan. In spite of how... It might appear everything is bombed out and unusable. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Well, from a human perspective, you're probably right, Samuel. If there's no sovereign God protecting you, guiding you every step, as he has for the previous parts of the story, what you're doing is a poor career move. See, Samuel's pointing out his humanity. God's saying, I'm going to anoint a king while there's still a living king. This is not a good thing. And I love how God guides him through kind of deception, but kind of also the truth. God gives him a way out, though. And isn't that true of the plan that God has for us? Ultimately, eternally, is a way out of sin. But it's also as he guides us, there is a way that he has for us. So God says, here's the way. The Lord said in verse 2, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel, as a priest or a prophet, would be making sacrifices for different purposes at different times, and, and so it's perfectly, perfectly acceptable that he show up to Bethlehem and offer a sacrifice. And I invite Jesse, here's, here's, here's the excuse, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. God doesn't let Samuel forget for a second. It's going to be me calling the shots this time. 
I have a plan, and I'm going to reveal it to you as you need to see. It's important for us to know that this is the way God's plan works through Scripture and works in our lives. The difference is, and I think a good disclaimer right now, is as we go through these narratives, and we're going to get to know Samuel continually better, and we're going to get to know this new anointee really well. But when we look down at this narrative of of lives and whole kingships and whole movements of armies, sometimes it's hard to forget that God is equally powerful and moving today in this little snapshot of our lives that we see. We get to see all these lives lined up in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and and it's it's tempting to forget. It's tempting to forget that he's no no less active today. So he's going to show Samuel, piece by piece, what the plan is. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. Now, you've heard this word anoint before, and you've heard, I think Pastor Nathan has talked about how the, the root of this word anoint, the Hebrew word, is for Messiah. And over the course of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, this name, this word comes up over and over and over. And, and in this particular occasion, God is saying, there's, there's this Messiah, this anointed, chosen one for my people. And what we know, if, you're, if you've been in this church and, and, and if you've been in God's word, is that this chosen man is going to be a picture of another chosen one. So this Messiah language points to something even better that's going to happen. And if we had time, we'd go through scripture after scripture that promises in Isaiah and, and elsewhere where what this, this other Messiah, the, the true Messiah, is going to be. But I love the foreshadowing of what, what God has planned for his people. So Samuel is obedient. He did what the Lord commanded and goes to Bethlehem. I think that that's incredible based on what he points out. You know, God, Saul is not known for his good decision-making, and I'm about to anoint a king. I don't know if you knew this, while there's another king living, but he's obedient. Time and time again in this passage and, and, and other passages before it, we see Samuel as such a faithful follower. I think by now, if you've been with us in this series, you just have this like awe-inspired appreciation for how Samuel follows God, tells Saul the truth. Last passage, when Saul's getting the kingdom taken away from him, Samuel is extremely bold. He's so faithful to the word of God and, and how he speaks to Saul, who, well, we'll see in a couple chapters, is a hard guy to tell the truth to. So what, what I think is in this passage for us is, is I think we as a church, First Baptist, church family, those of you who are online who are believers streaming in from elsewhere, We want to be seen as faithful followers of God. We want to know, are we being faithful to what God has for us? So I think in Samuel's steps in this passage, we're going to see some signs that this is what a faithful follower of God does. This is how we can know, are we being faithful? And if we're not, if we see spots in this passage where we're lacking, we can be convicted of, here are things I can do. Here's the next step for what I need to do in my walk with the Lord. So a couple of these indicators. Faithful followers, first of all, trust. Samuel had an incredible level of trust for God, enviable trust for God, particularly in these life-threatening situations where he says, okay, I'll, I'll go down to Bethlehem and meet this family that he's probably never met, provide a sacrifice as a way to, to meet an unknown second king, an unknown follower after Saul. He had trust. But, but more importantly, for faithful followers, you and I, he had trust that was, was based on God's plan in spite of appearances. We're also going to see a lot about appearances in this passage. And I think that you and I are really affected by appearances. I think that as maybe you sit in that, that pile of just broken decisions, wondering if God can possibly use you, the biggest thing working against you is how things appear. 
we're about to see that how things appear is, is not how things really are sometimes. How, how God doesn't look at what we see and only be limited by that, but he looks at other things. The heart is what he'll talk about. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want you to know, though, that one of the first signs here from Samuel, things we can emulate, is that he trusts God's plan in spite of how things appear. The, the kingdom, in, in all appearances, looks like it's about to self-destruct along with its king, but he knows that God's made promises. That can't be the case. Let's continue to read. In verse 4, the elders of the city come out to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Another spot where we see humanity here. I think it's, it's kind of humorous because if you were here last week, you know why they might be afraid of Samuel. They're either thinking or they had heard about King Agag and what happened after the battle of the Amalekites where Samuel chopped up King Agag, killed him as an offering in front of the Lord. Or they just know this guy means business and he's a man of God. And when he comes to a city, there's a reason. He's either working for the king, which is a big deal, or he's here on God's behalf. Obviously, we know what, what it is. So they ask, are you here peacefully? Samuel assures them, and he said in verse 5, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice for the Lord. Tells him the truth. He's going to provide a sacrifice. The sacrifice, though, is kind of a two-part occasion where he's going to sacrifice this animal and then and gather that family for a meal to follow. And, and the meaning, the intent of, of God is behind what happens at that meal. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Samuel gives them instructions. Make yourself clean and join us. Then he does the same for Jesse. In verse 5 it says, And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Really start to see how obedient Samuel is with every single step of this process. There are so many times here where I would have second-guessed, like, why am I down here? What, what am I doing? Like, Saul is going to find out at any moment that I'm down here. Because I don't know if you realize it, but Saul and Samuel talked quite a bit in the previous chapters. I, I, don't, I don't think Samuel... Uh, could hide out that easily. But, but he remained obedient. When they came, the, the family, Jesse and his family, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So even when you're being obedient, you're, you have your own thoughts. Maybe try to get out ahead of God. And so he sees this guy. And we'll learn a little bit more about Eliab here and, and in some following chapters. But he says, oh, this is it. Well, I'm glad we're done. I'm going to anoint him and get out of the way. Get out of here. The Lord says, though, not so fast. In verse 7, he says, and look what he says. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. See, appearances are so convincing to us. And, and the narrator in this passage can't get away from appearances. You'll hear it over and over and over. Because we can't get away from appearances. just the way we see things. I underlined here height of his stature, though, because it's such a fun kind of like foreshadow and look back. What was, what was known about Saul in chapter 8? What stood out? His height. Head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. Never mind the part about hiding out in the baggage. We won't count that against him. But he was a tall guy. I think, again, these words are chosen for a reason. And they're said, God's like, no, this is not what I'm looking for. You see how that plays out. This is not what I'm looking for. Because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. God clarifies that with, with a verse that I'm sure you all know by memory. Verse 7 here says, Man looks on the outward appearance. See, Samuel, you, us today, readers, we're, we're fascinated with the outward appearance. 
but the Lord looks on the heart. And this, this is both convicting and peace-giving for me. He knows my heart, but that means that he also knows my heart when, when, when I'm sitting in that pile of ashes and knows that I'm mourning, knows where that mourning comes from, that grief comes from, knows Samuel's mourning but wants to be faithful. He, he knows our hearts. And he knows the man that he's looking for is after his heart. We're going to meet that man in a moment. Verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. There's going to be a trend here of a lot of rejection. And Samuel is going to stick it out and stick to his guns and say, I'm going to listen for what God says. I I think that's so incredible. Because as Jesse continues through his sons, Jesse in verse 9 makes Shema pass by. So we're, we're on what, three now. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made all seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. If, if you were Samuel, would you have been like, I'm kind of tempted to take things into my own hands at this point and just anoint the best option that seems to be available? I, I think I would. I, I, think, I think that that given what's going on, your, your time is limited because you're going to be a wanted man if you follow through with this. Let's get done. But, but, but Samuel knows. He's trusting. There's a plan. I can't see it, but he sticks to his guns. In fact, he, he kind of becomes a little demanding here, and I, I, love, I love the language. So Samuel just prompts him and says, Are you sure? Verse 11, he says, Are you, all your sons here? And Jesse responds just so dismissively. There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. I just love biblical excuses. Excuses about, I bought some land, I can't come to this. I'm going to marry somebody, I can't go. He's keeping sheep. There's nobody else. None of my seven sons who you've already excused can keep the sheep. Nope, there's the youngest. I think that's because the youngest family judged him according to his appearance. Much like you and I would. But Samuel knows something, there's, there's something to this. In verse 11, he says, Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. I love that. He's like, the food is going to get cold. Better hurry and get him. Hopefully he's in a close pasture because I know that what God says is true, so I'm not going to cheat it. I'm not going to take things into my own hands. I'm not going to cut a corner. After all, last chapter, we saw how that all works out. Samuel's going to be faithful and says, go get him. So he sent, Jesse sent somebody out to get, to get David, well, whoops, spoiler alert, to get this young man. And what do we hear about? We hear about his appearances. I think this is a good reminder that the narrator even says in verse 12, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. But as we get to know this young man for the, the coming chapters, and especially next week, you should really be here. As we get to know this man, there's a lot more than appearance to this young man. Even today, though, we'll get a little, a little piece of that. But, but the narrator can't help but say, this, this guy was handsome. He had beautiful eyes. And the Lord says, anoint him, for this is him. Speaks directly to Samuel and says, aren't, aren't you glad you didn't cut corners? Here's the guy I promised you. The guy that I saw before you could. The guy I knew about before you knew about. I saw him when he was out in the sheep field. So Samuel is obedient. He takes the horn of oil and anoints him in the midst of his brothers. So Jesse and his brothers and probably these elders from the village see what happens to to this young man, see that he's anointed. 
I don't know what everybody there knew, but I know that anointings just didn't happen for no reason. There was an absolute purpose to why they did that. So probably David and Samuel knew what was going on. Certainly Samuel, obviously, knew what was going on. But this young man is anointed. So we've seen how trust, trusting God's plan, Samuel trusted God's plan in spite of how the circumstances and appearances were at the beginning of the chapter when he thought, I don't know what to think about this. Saul epically failed, and this was our guy. I don't know what you're going to do now. And then God tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm not done with you. I have a plan. Don't forget that. It's important that as a faithful follower, we not only trust God, but that we are obedient to him. See, that trust, that, that relationship of trust, I know you have a plan in spite of how it might look, will spur into us an activity, a response. And for Samuel, it was that he obeyed God knowing that he was sovereign. All of that I language at the beginning of this passage, I have seen, I have called, I will anoint, I will choose, all of that just shows that God owns all of this. He's saying to Samuel, we did this the way the people wanted. Saul was the people's choice. He was the people's king. Tall, strong, and handsome. Kind of a coward, but we won't judge him. We're going to do things differently now. The guy that you just anointed is going to change everything. We're going to hear about this guy in almost every book of the Bible for the rest of the story. So God is showing, if you trust me and you're obedient, I'll show you how much of this I really own. I own it all, and I'm going to do something through this young man that's going to be different than everything that's happened before. So we begin to learn about this, this young guy. Uh, verse 13, we hear his name for the first time. You'll be hearing his name for months now. As we go into 2 Samuel, Lord willing, after this book, we're going to learn about this young man quite a bit. And there's some com completely amazing things that happen through him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So Samuel's physical work there is done. He goes home. Let's slow down for a minute here and talk about the Spirit of the Lord. As we read these pa this passage, or as I read this passage this week, and just thought about what stands out, what's confusing, what's kind of hard, and we'll get to some of the hard stuff here pretty soon. The Spirit of the Lord language it might be different for you, if, particularly if you're a Christian and you're a new Christian. You've heard that. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, comes to live with inside you and is your helper, your encourager. He's there for conviction, understanding of God's Word. And that's all true. That's, that's the beauty of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that as we close. But for, for the Old Testament, which you might have heard, and if you've been with us, you heard with Saul, that the Spirit of, of God comes on these men for a specific purpose. That, that for Saul, it was so that he could be king. You'll hear about that with Samson, too, if you read the story about Samson. But, but in this time, the Spirit of the Lord comes on people for a particular purpose that God has in this plan. But we see in this yellow, the, the yellow type here that I've had highlighted, it's different with David. What's different with David is, is because David is going to be a model for all time of something that's going to happen. Because David is going to have a different heart, a heart that's God's heart, not, not based on what the people want, not based on his own secure, insecurity. But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave David. It sticks with him. And you know what? People notice that about David. People say that. I know the Lord is with you. I know the Spirit of the Lord is with you. David even knows that about himself. So what's different about David, one of the things that's different about David is that he has the Spirit of the Lord with him as he travels through the rest of this story. Now we get to some of the hard stuff. 
So the Spirit of the Lord comes on to David, and now the Spirit of the Lord in verse 14 departs from Saul. I think the easiest way to explain this is to say that he came on to Saul for purposes of being the king over God's people. And as we saw in the last chapter, and as we will see in many more, Saul is not fit to be the king over God's people. Saul will continue to, to, to spin out of control and self-destruct, make a lot of bad decisions, hurt the people who are closest to him. And God is not sanctioning that behavior with his spirit. He's not saying, this is the kind of guy that I want to run my people. No, I'm going to show you this different guy who I want to, to shepherd my people, to, to lead my people. So, so that, that anointing, that physical anointing that happens to David is accompanied by the Holy Spirit coming on to him. And the reverse is true for Saul, that, that he will now show us, show even his closest servants, what's really inside his heart will come out. And, 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 and God is no longer there to guide him as, as his time and leadership over Israel winds to a close. The important thing also to remember about this, though, is we read in last chapter, that's why it's so important you get that context and go back, that Saul rejected God long before God rejected him. Through his disobedience and his sin and his uh, small-mindedness, Samuel calls it his insecurity, he made other things God, obeyed other things, trusted in other things, served other things. Long before God departed from him, Saul had already made up his own mind that he was going to be his own king. He was going to be the people's choice. So it's important for us to know, lest it cause you to, to kind of doubt what God's intent here. This was for a specific purpose also, that people would see Saul's no longer king and that, that somebody else would be taking his place. Let's continue in verse 14 with probably the toughest spot. A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Last week we read some things that were hard, and this week we're going to continue to read things that are hard. There are hard things in God's word. True things, good things, but also hard things. If we slow down on this word harmful, it's, it gets into a lot of language things, none of which I am qualified to delve into, but I can tell you this, that, that out of the way this word is translated, there is evil in some of your texts, there's harmful in some of your copies. And we, the way we think, especially Western, is that evil is always like sinful devil evil. Evil's only that kind of evil. So that's why I, I like that we use this version and, and then this word harmful because it helps us see some of the other applications of this word is God is going to be actively impeding, harming Saul's ability to, to function, to come up with it on his own, to, to rule on his own. God is going to be playing interference there with his spirit, keeping Saul from, from making more decisions that, that could potentially be sanctioned by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Instead, he'll be impeded. You see that application of this word elsewhere in the text, and I think it's consistent to say God is tormenting Saul to make clear what's going on in Saul's heart to the people that are around him. And to demonstrate to Samuel and, and all of Israel, when I send a king for my people, this is not what I expect. This guy does not represent me. Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. We can't get away from the fact that this is from God. Even his servants somehow understand that. His servants are so much more perceptive of Saul. We feel, we feel bad for Saul a little bit, maybe here, even though maybe he's, he's getting some consequences of actively resisting and rejecting God. But I want you to know that in this passage, Saul doesn't call out to God. He doesn't pray. 
He doesn't say, rescue me. There are other guys, other kings who call out to God after doing evil, sinful things, but Saul doesn't do that. He tries to address some of the symptoms of the problem here, and we'll see that, but I want to push back a little bit on at least my desire to say, man, you know, this is, this is really hard to read and realize that Saul didn't call out to God. And, and after he has talked to God and talked to Samuel for so long, you think he could have done that, but that just further hammers home his rejection of God from the beginning. So the servants continue, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who's skillful in playing the lyre. It's, it's bad if you're a king and your servants are the ones starting to rule and run the shop here. When the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul, in verse 17, says to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Again, he doesn't pray, call out to God. He says, let's try to solve this in-house. Verse 18, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. If, if you don't believe that God has a sovereign plan in this story, the fact that this random king's servant somehow knows about the youngest guy that, whose own family forgets about him is just proof in the text to me that God is working through even this servant. I also think it's amazing that this guy has such a, a, a foreshadowing perception of who David will be. These are things that we haven't read about David doing yet. We will soon. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll hear even about the beginning of some of this. But you see outward appearance described, and you also see something different. Again, because God is, in fact, doing something different. The servant talks about what David's heart is like and is one of the first people to recognize the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, all these gifts, and sends David into the service of Saul. Verse 21, David comes to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. I'm sure there is some more time to that, but it just reads so instant. Just instantly relieved by the character that, that David brings into the throne room. And it also might show you how how immediate gratification Saul needed. Instead of praying and calling out to God again, he's just, oh, I'm glad this is fixed. Glad there's a solution. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. So as you are a faithful follower, as, as you ask yourself, am I a faithful follower? And as you watch Samuel, trust and obey. We get... We get with the beginning of the story of David here, and we'll get to know him better, so stick with us over the coming weeks. Read ahead if you'd like. It's, it's an amazing story of God's faithfulness and protection. We see, though, that a faithful follower will serve. What David practices in front of, in front of David here, what David practices in front of Saul here is service. But there's an important component to that service that this servant noticed. They serve. Faithful followers of God serve knowing that God is with them. See, David knows this. David knows this as he goes uh, into the next chapter through some pretty exciting events. And he knows this for the rest of his life, that as he serves, as he serves as, as Saul's armor bearer and musician, as he, as he runs from Saul, and as he serves as king, he knows that God is with him. 
Whenever the harmful spirit from God, we're back in 23, verse 23 to wrap up. Whenever the harmful spirit of God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. And Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Just to push a little bit harder on this service idea, I think that that Saul's reaction here is pretty convicting. And convicting in... I just want to ask you, as as you serve, if you serve, I want to ask you first if if you're serving in some capacity, do people see that the Lord's Spirit is on us? Does it come out in a way that refreshes and makes people well? Because they will. It's not only true about David that that they could somehow perceive this. People will see that we're different. They'll see that we have a trust in something other than ourselves, that we're obedient to something more important, better thought out, and certainly a better plan than we could come up with. And that will have an effect on people. And I think that's the kind of church that you want to have. We want to have an effect. There's a reaction in our town. There's, there's, there's an effect we want to have as individuals and as a church body for the gospel. And I think that this is a good challenge for us to see if, if we're trusting and obeying, are we serving? And if we're serving, does it have this kind of effect on the people who are closest to us? had this effect on Saul, and he was actively being troubled by the Spirit of the Lord. There are a lot of people out there who are troubled and, and could use that, that effect and, and use believers who have such a trust in God that they're serving the people around them. So I want to go back just for a moment as I wrap up to this, this gentleman sitting in the rubble where Samuel was at the beginning of this passage. And think about how different Samuel's walk home must have been from his walk down to Bethlehem and how he would have had a little bit of hope. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, uh, yeah, Brennan, you know, the, the decisions that have been made around me, the decisions I've made, the choices that I've made, the things that I would wanted to be my first choice, what I really wanted is not what I have. In some way, are you grieving? Are you hurting? Are you mourning? I hope you hear from Samuel's story here that, that God is not done with you. If you're drawing breath, God has a plan for you. But there's this response. We've talked about this response of trusting that that plan, he's, he's got a plan in spite of how it all looks, in spite of the rubble that might be right in front of you, he has a plan. He had it for Samuel and for the nation of Israel. That trust is going to lead you to a decision where you're going to choose to, to obey him. Because you can trust him, you can obey him. And Samuel knows that. It's been proven to him. And in a, in a short amount of time here, we see it proven to him again. That God is, is worthy of his trust, but also his obedience. And last, out of that, it's, it's going to create something in you, or it should create in something in us, an, an outworking that refreshes people, that, that benefits people. Even Saul was benefited by David. And David saw Saul at his absolute worst. Saul, this dysfunctional king who he could have taken advantage of. And if you don't believe that, stay with us for the chapters where Saul's life was in David's hand multiple times, but the service attitude that David has, where he submitted to this plan that God had and said, I'm just going to love him. I'm going to respect him. I'm going to tell you, though, if you're in a position of service, that, that you'll come back to needing to trust. That God will put you into positions, working with people, loving people, who there'll be appearances again, there'll be circumstances again that will drive you to lose trust that will cause you to fixate on how things appear and not what God is really doing behind the scenes. So I would encourage you to maintain trust in God and in His plan and hopefully seeing 
again, from, from up above, as we see people's lives and kingships and movements of armies, hopefully you can know that from our perspective, God is still working the same way. It's just sometimes harder to see because we see what's on the outside. I want to come back to one last thing. If, if you don't know God and, and you, don't, you sit here and you say, I, I don't know that he knows I'm mourning, but I don't know that I'd know his voice if I heard it. I want to point you back to the anointed. Verse 13 here talks about this word anointed. You heard me say it's Messiah. It's the word we get Messiah from and, and, and say elsewhere as Messiah. It's important that you don't leave our time together this morning hearing the difference between a Messiah for a time and the Messiah for all time. It's important that you don't walk out of here hearing God's word, knowing now that David points at something without knowing what David points at. So we're going to talk about that for just a moment as we wrap up. See, we talked about anointed over and over and how this is an outward sign of, of, of what God is planning to do with that individual. When that word is used throughout the Bible, it's used in the New Testament often, but it's used in Greek as most of the New Testament is written. The way it's pronounced in Greek is where we get the word Christ from. And one of the most beautiful times that this name for Jesus is used is when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples in verse 13. I'm going to start. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replies, telling Peter, you are correct. And it would be my hope, it would be our hope as a church. If, if, is this your first time with us or, or if you've been sitting in those ashes for a long time, that you would at least consider that, that while God is, is perfectly capable of, of anointing people to be the Messiah or the leader of his people in the Old Testament for a time, that he also sent a Messiah for all time. And Matthew points to that repeatedly and, in fact, starts the story of his gospel saying, this man will come from David. So as we start the story of David today and get to know him so much better over the coming weeks, and I, I really mean it when I say I'm excited for you to get to know David, he's just a picture of something better, this Messiah for all time. And I, and I would hope that, that if you don't know him, if you haven't proclaimed the same truth that Peter has here, that you would before you leave today or that you talk to one of us on your way out. So we would like you to know the Messiah of all time. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you gave us your word and that you see us when we mourn, that you see the hurting, that you know our hearts, so you know um, who's here that needs to know that there's a plan for their lives. Just ask that you convict them that the first step of that plan is to know you through your son. So thankful that you sent your son. As, as amazing as David was, that, that your son Christ was so much more incredible. How he laid himself down, how he came to serve and not be served. We do thank you for sending your son on our behalf. We thank you for your word and how it leads us and points us to him. We just pray that that would continue to be done for the time we spend this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.